Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. We are going to do some history. We're going to do 500 years of history in a few minutes. So put in your seatbelt, we'll go at a pace. There will be nice pictures for you as well. So 500 years of history. Let's start in the year 586 BC. So nearly 600 years before Jesus, the Babylonians ransacked Jerusalem. There is their king, Nebuchadnezzar, and they took the people into exile. And by that, it sounds like quite biblical language, but basically they took almost the entire population, anyone who was wealthy, any of the royal families, anyone who was of any use to them, they left behind the poor and the vulnerable. They took all that was good and took it thousands of miles away or a thousand miles away into their own empire. Uh, It's a very common practice if you are conquering. There are stories of the Russian army doing that even as we speak uh, to uh, towns and villages in the east of Ukraine. Uh, And uh, the the British Empire has a similar history. It's a very common conquering uh, empire plan to just remove a population. So Israel no longer exists. They have no capital. Their temple is destroyed, the royal family is obliterated, they are in exile. Then a few years after this, the Babylonian Empire, so Nebuchadnezzar, they were overrun by this young man, uh, King Cyrus. And he actually was a different kind of empire uh, ruler. He began to let people go back to their own nations and let them have their own cultures and live uh, the lives they wanted and to worship uh, their own gods in the way they wanted. And so he let uh, the Jews begin to return home. And you would read about this in Ezra, for example, how they uh, returned to Jerusalem, began to rebuild the temple. And in Nehemiah, you'd read about how they began to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And that was because King Cyrus let them. Um, And many people returned, but the majority were still scattered uh, across uh, that part of the world. Now, at this point in the Israelites' history, there was no prophets. God seems to be silent. The Jewish people were facing very deep questions about their identity, about who they were, about who their kings were meant to be, and most importantly, are we still God's chosen people? There were massive questions that hung over them. Then uh, in 330 BC, so a few hundred years later, they'd been in their land. Life seemed relatively normal. They weren't independent or autonomous, uh, but they existed. They'd rebuilt the temple. Uh, Then uh, this gentleman comes on the scene, Alexander the Great, king of the Macedonians. And he sweeps through that part of the world. Some people think he got as far as India. Uh, He uh, imposed his own culture, so we would call it Hellenistic culture, Greek culture. He imposed it uh, wherever he went. The reason the New Testament is largely written in Greek is because of him and his conquering armies. Uh, And the Jews seemed relatively happy to shift allegiance to him. Uh, Then Alexander died and his kingdom is divided into four. Uh, And his most senior generals basically got a piece each. And the Jews were controlled by the Ptolemaic Empire out of Egypt. Then in 198 BC, stay with me, I know this is a lot for a Sunday morning. It's okay, we'll keep going. Listen, fire hosing history at you here. So uh, then we get in 198 BC, the Seleucid Empire, Syrian 
empire. And they then gain control of the Jewish people and they have a slightly different style of empire building. They too want to impose Greek culture, but they did it slightly differently. They forbid anyone to practice their own religion to live their own traditional ways of life. If you disobeyed, they would kill you. So after a few years of this Syrian rule, the king of the Seleucids was this guy, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. Let's just, that is the correct way of pronouncing it. I even got the accent right. You don't know that because who knows what a Seleucid accent is, but there you go. Uh, That's who he is. Uh, And to get the loyalty of the Jewish people, he decided, I'll make them loyal to me by changing their religion. I will force religious change upon them. And so he decided to do this uh, on December the 25th, 167 BC. He went into the temple in Jerusalem and put up a massive statue for them to worship. And the statue was of himself. He put a big statue of himself in their own temple, turned it into a pagan shrine. Uh, And the, the second part of his name actually means God manifest. He gave himself that name. Basically, he called himself Antiochus the God. I am the God. Here's a big statue of me to worship. And what followed that was chaos. So many of the Jews refused to do this and were martyred. Um, Some were scattered away and began to pray uh, that God would restore his people. And out of this chaos comes another revolutionary movement, this time led by a guy called Judas Maccabeus. And he organizes a guerrilla revolt to overturn the tyrant's of Israel. And then on December the 25th, again, set a few years later, 164, Judas actually manages to cleanse the temple. Uh, they they uh, rededicate it back to God's. And Judas's followers, as they enter into Jerusalem, they wave palm branches uh, to, to celebrate their victory. And Jews still uh, celebrate this today with the festival of Hanukkah. And what follows this was a brief period of independence, but then years and years of instability. The Romans sweep through and eventually invade Israel. The Jewish people are divided into lots of groups. They argue amongst themselves. They fight for power amongst themselves. And then there's a line of priests and kings who collude with the Romans. And eventually we end up with Herod the Great. And Herod the Great rebuilt the temple which is what the true king of the Jews was meant to do. But Herod the Great was not viewed as legitimate. He was actually one of the most powerful, richest people in the world at that point. He makes Elon Musk uh, look very poor. He was a very wealthy man. And this is the world that Jesus lives in up to this point. The Jewish people have been conquered, freed, reconquered. The temple has been destroyed, rebuilt, desecrated, rebuilt all over again. And they've seen uprisings and rebellions and revolutions and martyrs and all sorts of chaos. And you think, okay, fair, why is this important to him? Why, why is this of any use to me at all? We need to see that the Jewish people were waiting for something or someone. For nearly 600 years, they have been a conquered nation, have experienced All the things that you experience when you're a tiny and a powerless nation surrounded by aggressive empires. They're having a crisis of identity and even calling. And two big questions hang in the air. Where is God and who is the king? So when a Galilean turns up, comes onto the scene and starts saying some pretty outrageous and very provocative things about himself and about who he is, 
and doing some very, very unusual things as well, some miracles, and the Jewish people see what's happening through this particular lens. They've seen a number of new kings come and go, and there were plenty of arguments amongst themselves about who was the right person to rule, what's the best way to worship gods, and then Jesus puts himself right into the middle and completely changes the conversation. So let's look at uh, what a friend of Jesus wrote about him. And this friend was a guy called John, and he wrote his, his gospel. Uh, and John was one of the 12 disciples and was in the kind of the core group of the 12 disciples, probably one of Jesus' most trusted companions, possibly one of his best mates. So that there aren't going to have been many people that knew Jesus as well as John did. Uh, and we think that John wrote his gospel after 70 AD. At some point after that. And 70 AD is important because the Romans crushed Jerusalem and the Jewish people. Again, they completely flattened the temple. Uh, If you go to Jerusalem now and look at what's left of the temple, that's what the Romans did. They they flattened and destroyed the place. It has never been rebuilt. So uh, John is writing that with this in mind as well. So at that point, 70 AD, the the church scattered. Um, We see them flee uh, across the world. So if you've got your Bibles, go to John 12, uh, verse 9, and it will appear up here for you as well, and I will read it to you. So when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So this gospel, John's gospel, the the friend of Jesus who, who wrote this, shows us how Jesus is the king that the Jewish people were desperately waiting for. But not only that, John is also adding a whole new element here. He's saying, look, this is the king that the whole world, all of creation is desperately waiting for him. And we see this played out even in these few verses. John's saying, look, this is the type of king that not only the Jewish people need, but the whole world needs this king. And it shows us that it's not quite the king that we're used to, not even the sort of king that we were expecting. So what sort of king does John say, this is who Jesus will be like? This is the sort of king he will be. And the first one is, He is a king that brings freedom. And John gives us three clues about the freedom that Jesus will bring. In in verse 12, he talks about the large crowd that had come to the feast. 
And John is saying it was the Passover festival, okay? And the Passover festival was celebrated to celebrate the Jews escaping from Egypt. Every Jewish family in slavery in Egypt at the time painted a lamb's blood above the frame of their door so that the angel of death would pass over them and all of their firstborn sons were spared. We know it's a, a famous story of Exodus. And John is saying look, that this was the festival that was happening. I want you to have this in your minds when you think about Jesus. Because he's saying, look, Jesus is a defeater of death. This is the sort of freedom he brings. Even his blood, and the Passover is about bloods uh, that frees us. Even this blood defeat uh, uh, marks us um, for him, meant his death, sorry, couldn't touch us. That's what he's saying. This is what you need to have in your mind, Passover. And then he refers to the palm branches as well, which uh, we read about with Judas Maccabeus and his rebellion. It says they waved palm branches as Jesus went by. It's exactly the same thing that happened then. Uh, It was a new Jewish king. He was saying, look, this is how the people of the time were viewing Jesus. They they saw him in the line of these kind of rebels against the empire, which is quite a limited view of Jesus. And then he also talks, uh, he he explains what these people started shouting at Jesus. Uh, They start shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And this is a a quote from Psalm 118. And he's saying, look, Jesus is linked to the Exodus. It's very important. He's also linked to this Maccabean uprising. But Jesus is also linked to King David, the writer of the Psalms. He is the greatest king in all of Israel's history. Three really big reference points for the people that were reading this at the time. And Jesus didn't do these things by accident, happened to do these things. And as John is writing it years later, he's thinking, I know, I know how I was string this together. Jesus is performing as he does this. It's almost a piece of street theatre in a way. It's a prophetic performance because he knows what people are thinking. He knows the worldview that they have. It's not like he's turning up in Manchester and we're understanding it through our Western worldview. He is turning up in the middle of Israel 2,000 years ago, and they are viewing it with that lens. John is explaining, look, this Jesus is the true king. As he walks into Jerusalem, he's actually here to claim his true throne. And this is a king that brings total freedom to us. He brings freedom from slavery, like breaking out of Egypt. He brings freedom from invading forces, perhaps like Judas. But he also, more importantly, brings freedom from death so that we can worship him and actually we can have a life built on him. Now, not all kings or queens or leaders do that, do they? Now, if we look at our dear friends in North Korea, the family that actually leads North Korea, claim some sort of divine upbringing. If you look at the way they tell their family story, they talk about the the first dictator, the original one. Uh, They talk about how he was born on a mountain and that God was involved in it somehow. Actually, they're a fabulously wealthy group of people who lead an incredibly poor group of people. For in North Korea, hundreds of thousands live in concentration camps. Or you might think of uh, maybe some of our our other great dictators of the modern world. Maybe Robert Mugabe on his 90th birthday uh, had a party that cost a million pounds, even though his country was getting poorer and poorer. 
And if you were to look at some of British history as well, actually, there are uh, kings and leaders who have been very oppressive and they do it for their own gain. And actually, they, they bring captivity. But Jesus is the bringer of freedom. He wants to bring liberty. And actually, John describes uh, the words of Jesus in a few chapters before this, where Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's very different to perhaps the Romans or the Syrians or the Babylonians. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus is a different type of king. He brings freedom. And also he rules with humility. So it says Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it and went into Jerusalem. Again, this is part of his prophetic street theatre, his prophetic action. Uh, Jesus wasn't tired. He didn't think, I could take this a long way. That's a big hill up to Jerusalem. There's no Ubers. I'm going to catch a donkey. That's what I'm going to do. Actually, it fulfills some scripture. Zechariah um, says, rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing here. So you think when any of these armies swept through the ancient Near East, did they ever ride in on a donkey? Seems unlikely. They would have ridden in on very powerful animals dominating uh, their surrounding uh, countryside. Can you imagine the Russians sweeping into Ukraine on donkeys? They certainly did not do that. They didn't go with humility. But that's what Jesus wants to do. He is unimpressive as he goes in it's the transport of poor people and humility in leadership actually is a a relatively rare commodity even in church leadership would you believe that it's shocking isn't it Uh, I was at a conference number of years ago and uh, a friend of mine was uh, was speaking at this conference and he was a very big personality and um he led a, a big church, hundreds and hundreds of people. And then he stood at the front. And it, I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of going to a conference full of lots of church leaders, but they would be like any other people and they kind of flex and show off a bit. They try to claim that they're not, but they do. They, it's a little bit, uh, we're, we're trying to uh, make ourselves look good. But he stood there at the front and said, look, you know what? I'm not the best leader in my town. And then he said, I'm not even the best leader in my church. And it was a very disarming, very humble moment. Actually, it was a very kingdom attitude. Jesus' kingdom is a humble kingdom. And that's how Jesus approaches us. So it's how he approaches you. He doesn't approach you with uh, domination or, or trying to lean over you or intimidate you. Actually, he comes at us humbly and kindly. He isn't on the back of a big animal leaning over you. He's on a donkey. Could you imagine if you were at um, uh, one of the Manchester United or Man City games and you saw the police there? They're on those massive horses, aren't they? Those things are are huge and it's meant to intimidate and raise them up. And you're meant to be a bit fearful of them. Imagine if they were all on donkeys. Uh, They'd no control. They'd be off everywhere. Where are the police? Well, the donkeys have just wandered off. Uh, Actually, uh, Jesus is approaching kindly. He doesn't want to control. Actually, Jesus wants to be invited What kind of king is Jesus? Well, he brings freedom. He rules with humility. And thirdly, he rules in eternity as well. 
So as John tells this story of the, the triumphal entry, actually he's mixed it up and tied it up with the story about Lazarus. Lazarus, his death and the resurrection of Lazarus. Now, Lazarus was another friend of Jesus. I wonder if John knew Lazarus. I wonder if they were mates as well. Sometimes when you read this story, you, can, you kind of lose the personality and the humanness here. I wonder if, as John wrote this, he was remembering Lazarus and then remembering his sisters, Mary and Martha, and remembering just this family that they would have been friends with. And they seemed like a family that were relatively well known. I mean, whether that was because one of them died and came back to life. I mean, that's instant fame, isn't it? Uh, or whether it's because they were known politically or whether because of their association with Jesus. But this friend of Jesus dies. Lazarus dies. And, and Jesus actually knew that was going to happen and delayed going to see them and only arrived when, once Lazarus had died and had been actually put in, a, put in the cave and um, was very, very dead, even smelling dead. And Jesus arrives after that and then raises him from the dead. And this obviously caused an almighty kerfuffle, shall we say. And John refers to this, says, look, the large crowds of Jews learned that Jesus was there and they came not just because it was Jesus. So Jesus was saying some incredible stuff, doing incredible miracles, but they weren't there just for him. They were there to see this bloke who was dead and now is alive again. I mean, that's the level of, uh, of interest here. And John is saying, look, this raising of Lazarus from the dead is, is the sign of a, the type of king that Jesus would be. He is not just the king of a nation. So don't get caught up with the, him going into Jerusalem, which is the capital of Israel. Don't get caught up in the idea that he's going to rule a patch of land or that even he's going to be the ruler of one ethnic group. Don't get caught up in that. Jesus is the king of eternity. So he's going into Jerusalem, having raised someone from the dead. He's the king over all creation. Lazarus' death and resurrection was a massive clue as to what Jesus could do, who he was. Death would hold us no more because Jesus does the same for us that he did for Lazarus, calls them out of the tomb, calls us out of the tomb. So what kind of king is Jesus? He is the only king in the history of the world that beats death. He's not a king that brings death. The kings that uh, Israel is useful to and that we are used to, that we see on the news all the time. Kings that bring death, chaos and suffering. You, you only have to watch uh, our, our news and look at some of the geopolitical moves and you realise that our leaders, they tend to do that. They tend to bring chaos. They tend to bring suffering. They tend to bring death. But Jesus actually does the opposite. Jesus defeats death. He also defeats the chaos of our world and he defeats the suffering of our world as well. He is the only king who is eternal, the only king that is, in fact, God. And many kings have claimed to be gods over the years. Caesar Augustus named himself as divine. And actually, the, a lot of the Roman empires are, are emperors after him kind of took that as well. said, yeah, it's quite useful for people to think I'm God, so I'm going to claim that. Uh, he did that. Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament, he built a massive idol of himself, the, the guy that invaded Israel first time round. Uh, the leaders of North Korea, again, suggest they're divine. It's a very common thing. And perhaps even if they don't outright say, yes, I'm, a, I'm divine, Leaders increasingly give themselves more and more power and control and authority 
over us in ways that is almost godlike. But none of them can raise anyone from the dead. None of them at all. COVID proved that, if nothing else. Actually, as disease sweeps the world, we realise we are basically powerless for a time. All of them, in fact, will die. Finally, what kind of king is Jesus? Jesus is the only king whose rule and reign begins with his own defeat. So over this whole story of Jesus going into Jerusalem, all of the history that kind of leads to this moment, all of the different narratives that are in people's minds as they see Jesus and wave palm branches at him and look at Lazarus and all of these things, actually, what hangs over that is Jesus' own death. Now, the people who were there in the moment, they didn't know that. But as we read it, as John writes it, we're meant to understand this death of Jesus hangs over this. At this moment, there is a big crowd cheering Jesus, calling him the king, being really excited for him. But a week later, he'd be dead. He'd be on the cross on his own. The beginning of the week, he is being cheered and uh, celebrated. At the end of the week, they're outright mocking him and laughing at him. Jesus is different to every other king because his rule begins with his defeat. Jesus' rule and reign begins with his own death. Every other king ends their rule and reign with their own death. So the big questions that hang over Israel actually are the same questions that hang over us, hang over us as a, as a, a human race. Who is the king and where is God's? And as you come into Easter week, that is the question. And we've largely removed Jesus from our Easter celebrations in the, in the West. But at this point in time, we should be thinking, who is the king? Where is God? And when we get to know Jesus, we have an answer to both of those questions. Jesus is the king. Jesus is God.